1: the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter.
0: I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I have been on the road. I am back in the office, and I'm excited for this podcast today. I've been waiting to do a podcast on apple, crab apples, fruit trees in general, but to talk about the maintenance aspect of it. Um, I've planted my first apple tree when I was a child. Um, I've gone through a lot of ups and downs and mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. I continue to learn, I continue to grow. Uh, fruit trees are a fun hobby. Do I focus a lot of that, you know on the landscape? Is that part of my plans? Absolutely, because I think people get a lot of joy and entertainment out of watching a fruit tree develop and become somewhat productive. And there's a lot of philosophies you know across the landscape on where you employ them how you set them up, how you build an orchard, how you protect an orchard. We're going to talk about some of those topics today, but we're going to get into some details that I typically don't get into. You know, we're very deer focused on this podcast. Obviously we've talked about other species. We're going to get into turkeys this year. There's a bunch of different things we're getting into, but I'm excited to talk about fruit today. And I, I got a great guest on. I've been trying to helm this guy for, I think last year, he he might've wanted to come on, but he's extremely busy. So he's a hard guy to get a hold of. Uh, Ryan Haynes from a uh, you know, Blue Hill Wildlife uh, Nursery, and he's, uh, he sells out very quickly for his trees. And this isn't focused on the sales aspect of it. We're focused on the education side of things. So I want everyone to recognize that. Hey, Ryan, you on the line? Yep, I'm here. All right, man. It's good to have you on the podcast. Yep, thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't we just just quickly, you know, get into you. Where are you located? And uh, talk a little bit about your orchard and, and sale of trees and th- those type of things.
1: We're located in central Pennsylvania and pretty much send trees across this country to, you know, most every state that's got some deer in it.
0: I was on a job a couple years ago and I called you because I had heard so much about your product and I had some trees that I wanted you to take some cyan wood off of. We never connected, but I know you come up in New York and across the country to find, you know, kind of good stock of trees or good quality trees, whether it's persimmons, you know, apples, crab apples, those type of trees. But you sell all species. I mean cherries. I mean there's there's probably a lot of varieties that you do sell at your nursery.
1: Yeah. everything. I mean, mainly what I focus on is is, you know, persimmons is, is a you know exceptional tree. You know, you get into apples and, and something that's uh very productive, you know, whether that's an apple, apple crab or a crab apple, you know, into pears, chestnut trees, everything. If I remember right, that tree back then was you know, what I would call an apple crab. It was, uh, you know, bigger than a golf ball, smaller than a tennis ball. But, you know, if if somebody could see the tree, you know, right now, I remember the picture in my head, you know, it was just, you know, just a mass amount of fruit hanging on the tree in January. And and a tree like that is, you know, one piece of that puzzle when looking for a tree that's going to be a winner. Obviously, you'd want to take into effect that, you know, how about disease resistance? You know, is it productive annually? Is it, you know a lot of things that that would go into that tree but i remember that picture and it was it was no doubt an exceptional tree
0: yeah and it's hard to find those exceptional trees in the landscapes and when you do you want to take advantage of them and, and take advantage of that sign wood all right well, so let's go let's get into some of the aspects like so right now we're in uh you know we're, we're heading into march um i'm in zone five you know some people are in zone four i don't know if you're in zone six or what zone you're in specifically but This is kind of the opportune time to start maybe pruning your trees, uh, your fruit trees specifically. And I wanted to kind of get your take on the approach that you have going into this, and maybe think specifically about the type of tree that you have on the landscape, whether it's a standard, depending on the size of the tree, you know, semi-dwarf, or whatever the example is, and then kind of go into your strategy and philosophy and how you kind of manage, you know, those trees at least at this time of year. What's your what's your key? keynotes on on those particular topics.
1: Well, I'm located, I'm on the edge of 5B, 6A. I mean, a majority of the trees I sell are are grafted onto a a standard root. You know, and that's the key thing about you, that tree you said about there earlier. To replicate that tree and, and what you see from that tree that's up there in your area, the only way to do that is to, you know, graft it. You know, there's a ton of different ways to graft that tree, but to get the same replication, you know, you're looking at literally just cloning the tree over and over again and get the same thing. But as far as is pruning and stuff like that, this time of year is a great time of year. You get those nice 45-degree days or 40-degree days. Great time of year to be out there and pruning. And what I mainly look for, you know, when looking at apples, you know, just develop a central leader. If you want a good, strong central leader, no double leaders in that, especially as the tree's young. You know that first four or five years of you planting that tree and growing that tree, yeah by that year four you're gonna to need to be on a step ladder to get up there and prune on that tree, but really establishing a good central leader and I like to grow a tree that's you know I want a tree that's twenty foot tall I want a tree that's twenty five foot tall thirty foot tall thirty five foot tall if I can get it out of a fruit tree you know the more you know it's kind of like uh you look in the city you know they grew upwards and and you know, put up a skyscraper or whatever to make people live in. Same thing with that fruit tree. If you can grow it high, the higher, the better. Yeah. More fruit, more tonnage, more you're feeding the deer, more you're feeding the wildlife, yeah. not just deer, but, you know, easily this time of year, you know, if the ground's snow covered, there's turkeys, there's grouse, you know, if you got some crab apples hanging, they're going to be eaten along with those deer. I like to establish a central leader, and in that younger stages, really the only thing I'm looking for is not to have a double central leader, because it could split your tree down the middle as that tree starts fruiting and, and putting out a really good crop, it could split your tree right down the middle. You know, if you really want to get technical and look back through things, you know, crisscrossing branches, any branches that are heading, you know, going back towards your central leader. You know, aside from that, I really a lot of times you're better off not pruning the tree off. You don't know, you know, exactly what you're doing. You'd almost be better off letting it go and just don't get a son don't get a double leader, and uh, you know establish that central leader is in the first few years of growing the tree.
0: Oh, so let's let's say somebody wants to be a little more sophisticated. There's there's two points there that you brought up. One is a standard tree, and we're talking about maximum production. We want the maximum or the most amount of, of fruiting production or fruiting opportunities, and so more branches, more opportunities. There's another piece of this we're managing light, right, and that whole Managing light aspect of this is important. I think what I struggle with, and I've followed a bunch of different people that do pruning and, you know, they have all different philosophies and they, they build their scaffolding and they have so many branches per scaffolding. And, you know, basically they're looking to manage the light optimally. And they have these kind of, I guess I would say almost like a coniferous shape tying into that central leader concept. What is your opinion of that and branching scaffolding first tier, second tier spacing? What's your philosophy there?
1: I I would go every, uh, you know, as far as that scaffold, I would look at about two foot, 18 inches, two foot, set out another set of limbs. You get into bear country, things change for you. You know, guys that are out there that got a lot of bears, you're looking to establish, uh, you know, when we're talking scaffolds, we're looking at the branches that are coming off of your central leader that are going outwards away from your tree. You're you're looking at bear country, you want to develop a, less of a scaffold, bigger branches, hold bear's weights. You get that mom and cubs up there. They're playing around. There's apples on there. They're going to be going up the tree, develop a really good scaffold, really young. You may go three foot apart, four foot apart on that scaffold and really get some size to those limbs coming off that central leader to be able to hold a bear's weight. Obviously you get a, you know, a 400 pound bear climbing up the tree. Well, you know, that scaffold might go out the window, but that's the game you play. We all play it. We all got properties, different, different places.
0: Yeah. You bring up a really interesting topic of bears. And in that case, what would be your recommendation? So let's say, is it protecting the t- tree, fencing the tree? What, what would be the opportunity to eliminate bear introduction?
1: Re- remove that fruit for the first, as long as you can reach it, as long as you can get to it. Keep that fruit off for that first. You know that first five years, and it's all going to be dependent on the tree you're, you know, you're planning to also. But you know, you're just like I said earlier, you're trying to really establish good-sized branches coming off that tree to be able to support a bear's weight. That'll get you into the game. There's really, I don't think everybody's tried from barbed wire to, you know, fencing to higher fencing to, to, to the concrete fencing going around this thing and trying to put it in there. But <laughs> keep, keep the keep. Keep the fruit off as long as you can and establish uh, good branch angles and, and, and really develop those lateral limbs coming off is the best thing. And I've grown trees for well, a long time in bear country, and, and they're going to take some limbs off. An important thing would be looking at soil. You know, you can't, you know, yeah, bear gets into a tree, he busts some limbs off. And if you're in really, really poor soil and, and didn't do a little homework in there, do a soil test and make some amendments that that tree can bounce back fastly. You know, that's going to that's gonna be an, an, an issue, too, if, if the tree's in very poor soil and it took it, you know, a long time to get to size, what's going to take a long time to compound that growth back that would happen when you get some bear damage? So appropriate soil, you know, N P H would be, uh, be very important there when, when looking at that.
0: Right, I want to back up for a second. And you talked a little bit about crotch angles. And I don't know, this is the old school piece of me. We used to when I was kids, we used to tie down our branches because th- they would say hormonally, you know, that stimulates or gives opportunities for the the tree to be more fruiting like, right? And this more this vertical um, instead of this, uh, excuse me, horizontal versus vertical branching. And I've used spreaders, clothespins, you know, depending on the age of the tree, I've tied them down to center blocks, stakes. You know, what's your opinion on crotch angles and how to manage that? And and any. Any size tree? Do you have an opinion? Do you Uh, let it? Do you let the fruit do the work? What's your opinion?
1: I I, I've never say I never have, but yet I've played with it just to see. Yeah. And hundred percent, there's no doubt. You know, tying a branch down is definitely going to make it fruit faster. That's that's what you just said there before. That is that's a fact. Yeah. You know, limbs going vertical, not so much limbs going horizontal. Fruit faster. There's, there's no, there's really no doubt about it. So, you know, if, if you got the time to train, train your tree and you want to put the crotch angles in there and give it a good crotch angles and, and uh, tie down limbs and stuff like that. If you got the time and energy to put into that, do so. But I think a major thing of that is because a lot of times back then we were pulling from commercial type trees that you needed to do things like that too. Hmm. You know, there's, there's a ton of trees out there, not a ton. You know, a lot of the varieties that, that I have available to me, you know, generally are gonna pretty fast for me. I'm gonna plant an appropriate soil. Soil is very important when you're looking at a tree producing in a young age. As you get fruit on the tree, it's naturally going to, you know, make those limbs go down and be horizontal. So when you make those limbs limbs naturally horizontal, you're gonna get that effect coming over and over I don't I'm not gonna train limbs when I can just let the you know, the sweet event pair hang off the tree and I'm going to let three or four of them hang on this limb and it's going to train it for me. And, you know, I've only had the tree for three years. I'm just going to, you know, let the fruit do it for me. There's plenty of trees out there that do that for you. But I think back then that was a a thing because of the trees we were using back then.
0: It's an interesting topic because I think a lot of people watch videos. I mean, uh, you know, I, I followed this one guy years ago where he was really big on having, depending on the size of the tree, having the scaffolding very low to be an edible source for deer. It keeps them off the central leader for rubbing or the trunk for rubbing. And, you know, there's that philosophy that I've seen it totally, you know, yep. on the other yep. side of it where, you know, you just focused on, you know, stem development and, you know, you want your branching super high. And then, again, I've seen where you've got to worry about obviously rubbing on the tree from antlers etc we talked about bears earlier you know there's all these different philosophies but you started bringing up soil and you know i do a lot of work with soil because of the food plots and i use a certain lab and there's just i look at soils a lot for you know food plot uh, development and enhancing them i I don't even i use basically slow non-soluble you know fertilizers rock phosphates things that take a long time to decompose because I'm a, I'm a slow grower. I'll use azomite. I mean, I'll use some natural, basically, you know, high mineral content. Um, I know that our soils in these areas are very boron deficient, copper deficient. My soil is very zinc deficient. Um, So I'm looking at all attributes of like soil as it relates to the particular plant. You know, getting soil tests is kind of an interesting topic because I think a lot of people aren't thinking about that, but they're putting, they're putting these plants in, you know, these field settings where they have like, um, food plots, for example, because you're getting more sunlight, these are on the edges or maybe they're grouped together. You know, what do you, you know, when you're taking soil samples, what are you looking at? Cause I, I know your soils are probably pretty poor. Um, you're probably a pretty good testing ground, I guess, for, you know, susceptible uh, trees. What do what you, what are you thinking?
1: I, I mean, your, your two most important you know, nutrients in there are your phosphorus and potassium Yeah, for a fruit tree on a young, at a young age, you know, after year five, six, seven, no, the there are two nutrients that become, you know, not so much important for that fruit tree. And you know as well as I do, it's easy to feed anything some urea. Or, so, you know, <clears throat> but it's very important nutrients are actually down there where a tree can utilize it. When looking at a food plot, you're looking at that, you know, maybe you're working that top six inches or maybe you're working that top eight inches or you know, maybe you're down a foot. So getting those nutrients down in there to that tree that you've just planted down there, maybe it's down 18 inches. You know, that's very important. You know, that aspect to making sure that that tree is there, that it can utilize it at that point.
0: Do you have a tendency to bring in compost or a hundred percent? Okay.
1: Com- compost is is a very good thing. Just because when you're digging down in there, 24 inches or 18 inches down in the soil, it's soil that's never been worked. And a common mistake is, a lot of people want to add fruit trees to their, you know, around the food plot, but they want to put them outside the food plot, even though they spent the last six years, you know, working in that food plot and they brought their pH up and they brought, you know, they, you know, nutrients up in the optimal and, you know, everything's good. And they're getting, you know, whatever, if they're going turnips or whatever, or brassicas, or, you know, they got bulbs that are, you know, size of softballs and things are great, but outside that food plot, things aren't so great. And then they want to plant the fruit trees over there against the big red oak and you're not going to get the you're not going to get the growth if you put that out there and you planted the right variety, you know, a grafted variety in my mind, you know, you've really got something special over there growing, give it that good dirt. That's my opinion.
0: Yeah. That's uh that's good advice. Cause I see the same thing when, when I'm working with clients and they're, they're picking, they're picking on work ground that, that typically is, you know, grassland areas that, that are sometimes nutrient deficient. So let's, uh, Let's kind of step into, you know, site selection, so to speak. And I want to talk a little bit more about like, I guess, management of the tree as it kind of ages. So, you know, as you kind of get into this decision, whether you picked an apple, crab apple, whatever the case may be, you're trying to pick a site that gets, you know, a fair amount of sun you know, and then you, sometimes a lot of trees, yeah. there's, you know, the South facing and maybe Southwest facing, and they tend to pull to those areas. Any oh. strategy, you know, alignment of trees and rows, do you position them North, South, West, East, anything like that from your perspective, that'd be helpful.
1: Um, I mean, a lot of times I would look at prevailing winds. If, if I'm setting up trees, whether you're setting in a, a 10 acre food plot or a one acre food plot, or maybe it's a half acre, you know, I would really look at that prevailing winds as you get into smaller food plots prevailing winds aren't going to matter as much because if you're archer hunting, that that deer is going to become within range. But if you're sitting in a, in a you know, five acre plot or something like that, I would want fruit positions where the prevailing wind is going to help me. And you're always better off getting trees, morning sun. And I think a big factor of that is They get that morning sun, you know, they've got every fruit tree that's out there for sale. There's nothing that's going to grow in in a solid shade. Everything's going to need at least six hours of direct sunlight, not scattered sunlight, but sunlight directly hitting the tree. And that morning sun, I think, is great for that first six or eight hours to give that tree plenty of light that, you know, everything's happening for that tree the way it should be. But yet, as that sun gets hot around, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock, the hottest part of the day. You know, that soil is able to hold back more moisture at that July, you know, important times for a tree in, in July, August, where a lot of times around this country or around the northeast here, you know, things go dry. You know, it might not rain for three weeks. It might not rain for a month, depending on, uh, you know, how the thunderstorms tend to hit you that time of year. So it's important to retain that moisture. And I think that's a lot of why trees do better to get that sun you know, that first thing in the morning and and get it all the way to the day, not saying you can't go trees on the other side of the plot. And and if you're dealing with chestnut trees, trees that are going to get 60, 80 feet, you know, tall, you want them on the north side. You don't want them shading out, you know, 20, you know, 20 years from now, this tree's 50 foot tall. You don't want it shading out your, your, you know, your apple tree over there. That's only 25 foot tall. So you almost have to position things, and even persimmon trees. Persimmon trees in time are going to get to be 80 feet tall. You know, here in the Northeast, if you're looking at 90 chromosomes and stuff like that, they're going to get big. So you want to keep them. Now, they're very shade tolerant. A persimmon tree will produce in the absolute complete shade. If you planted, you know, 10 of them and spaced them at 5 foot, they would all, that center tree would still produce 5 years from now, 20 years from now. Center tree would still produce in the fruit even though it's uh, totally shaded. So it's, there's a lot that really goes into it, depending on what you're planting, you know, if you're planting apple trees or whatever, but that morning sun, very important.
0: Yeah, that's a good takeaway for me. And I think a lot of people may not recognize that. So, and I can't think of the individual's name that I paid attention to a few few years ago, but he talked about tree spacing. And I'm going to throw out another concept. And I don't know, Ryan, we, we hadn't talked about this, but, you know, I, I when I plant my uh, apple and pear trees. And I recommend this to clients is I typically have a, a nitrogen fixator, a nitrogen producer. Now, all trees, generally all trees produce nitrogen. Uh, there's a nitrogen component in in their production cycle, some more than others. I use honey locusts, thornless honey locusts, and I take the branches and I push them all the way down. So it almost looks like a coniferous tree, but the branches are actually downward and I'll position a nitrogen producer, an apple, pear, then a nitro producer if I'm doing them in rows. And I'm typically not doing them in rows, but I'll actually have two fixation trees around in an apple tree or pear tree. And that's kind of one of my design philosophies that I've kind of come up with a few years ago. It's kind of a permaculture thing. And then you can introduce other plants along the base. People use like Russian comfrey and there's a whole, you know, you can build these fruit guilds. There's a, there's a concept surrounding this and it's, that's a little unique, but that's like specialized. If you're really going to get into maximizing space and optimizing, you know, kind of that productivity on the landscape and having these, you know, multifaceted kind of multi-dimension polycultures, that's one philosophy there's another philosophy where you're just going to go at it and you're going to try to maximize maybe along the edges of fields, you know, these large standard size trees that are just reaching that maximum production. And the question is what type of tree are you going to select? And you have to think about early, mid, late droppers. And so my question to you, and and I'm more of the latter of the two, I've done both styles, at least designing fruit guilds and then focusing on individual trees and et cetera. But my philosophy has been more kind of your your area. Big standard producing trees that m- m- the max amount of fruit. The problem I have is the waiting time. So I'm I'm wondering on, on your side of the house, how do you increase production time frames? And, and it's a, it's it's kind of based upon, you know, the, the tree type that you're using, the rootstock, etc. cetera. Um, and and have this balance because some people just don't want to wait. And I guess my question to you is what do you how, what do you recommend in those scenarios to, to most folks? I mean, really it's
1: fruit trees. You've got to have a, a, a plan in mind. There's got to be an end game for you. And where's your end game at? And I almost feel like we're two talking about two different things. I mean, a grafted tree is going to produce much faster for you than, than say a seedling, mm-hmm. you know, a regular seedling tree might be at year six, could be year eight, could be year 10, could be year 12, depending on your soil. You know, in a grafted tree, I mean, you can plant a, a roadkill crab and it's going to, you know, fruit for you many times through you plant it now are, you know, 12 crab apples or 25 crab apples hanging on a tree going to be a sustainable food source for wildlife. No, but they give you a, you know, a good realization, you know, a, a good opportunity to see what this tree is going to do and and really give you something to focus on is, is what this tree is going to look like at year, you know, five, what's going to look like 10, but really you, you've got to have a, you know, You got to be realistic and think of this is what I want. This is what I want this to look like in in five years. I want to be able to feed X amount of deer off of these trees. So it may, you know, put in your mind that, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't just be planting four trees. Maybe I need to plant 24 trees. So, you know, you, you, you compound when you put numbers of trees in to make a sustainable food source. But when you fall into grafted trees and stuff like that, I mean, they're, there's a lot of good varieties if you look at Blue Hill Wildlife Nursery there that you can see what's what's available and what they'll do. It's, you know, all in what you want to do and, and really looking at that, I would just have a five-year-old, you know, five-year plan. I'm looking to to put X amount of deer standing at this location five years from now. you got to be realistic, not saying you're not feeding some deer, you're, you're three or four, but I mean, it's just going to take time. It's trees. It's not that instant gratification that, you know, I just put this clover plot in this spring or that fall with the you know elder deer come walking in and eating it, you know, you you gotta have a plan in place and, and really think about what you're doing, what you're planning and why you're planning.
0: So I was walking down this this path with you right now to give, I guess, you know, my take on things. And so there's a patience aspect of this and then there's the planning. So we've got standard and then we've got these grafted options that we've talked about. When you talk grafted, there may be a combination thereof. And, you know, the Geneva rootstock, for example, you know, they're going to produce really, really quick. Uh, it's, you know, it's a semi-dwarf tree. I've, I've got some here on my, on my property. Um, whether it's a G30 rootstock or whatever the case may be, you know, you've got to worry about, you know, different facets with those. I mean, sometimes they, they break at the bud union section. But regardless of your selection, if you have varieties, like we're, we're kind of getting that of different types of trees, size standards of trees, you may have. Right. Looking look those, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Look at, look at,
1: look at, looking, you know, when you get into something like that, the faster a tree matures, the faster it dies. When a tree stops growing, it doesn't live any longer. When I say grafted trees, I'm not saying the tree's not grafted onto a standard rootstock, but that's, that's a key when looking to produce for wildlife, that it's on a standard rootstock, you know, we we can put it on one of those dwarf, you know, you're you're really in the dwarf trees there, but you're just looking at this 12 foot tall tree, at maturity, or you know maybe it gets to 14 foot, but its lifespan is is, you know, you're still going to see that tree not be living anymore in your lifetime. When you're putting on a standard root, you're not on a clonal stock, so you're you're looking at a, a more longevity in that tree. It could be 80 years, it could be 100 years, it could be longer. Even yeah. though it is still this grafted tree, so that's the difference between the root stocks that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great that's a great takeaway. All right, let's talk about design and layout. So, you know, in a hunting scenario, you know, and we'll talk about variety of trees that you prefer here in a second. But in a hunting scenario, when you're doing your layout for you personally, how do you like to set up your your landscape setting where you can maximize? You have the fruit production. Maybe you have some food plot. You know, design. Maybe there's some some wildlife shrubs integrated in there. What's, what's Ryan's setup look like? I'm, I'm
1: really, well, sometimes you we'll have to come down to take a look. Yeah. I got, I got multiple properties, so we can go for lots of walks. Um, I, I really look, you know, in the fruit tree aspect of things, I really look and focus on drop times. Why? Because they're important because I'm, you know, I mainly like the bow hunt. Well, bow hunting is only so long, and I'm more than fine with your being closer before that, but I don't need them standing at, you know, 35 yards. So I really, really try to focus on uh, the drop times, a good tree that's got some good DR to it. DR is disease resistant and, and, you know, things like that. I'm really just looking at, you know, location of that tree. Now, from a small property, if you're really looking to mine, I'm going to feed as many deer as I possibly can on the entire thing. And of course, I'm going to have some trees that are close enough for me to be able to shoot to, but yet. I'm just going to put, and when I say small property, I mean even, you know, eight acres, 12 acres, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: 15 acres, you know, you don't got that much to work with. The more deer you can put on there and the more deer you can have from mid-October until that third, fourth week of November on your property, even if that's 15 or 20 doe on a small property like that, the more bucks you got coming. The more deer you can feed, the better and and soft mast is just the, the icing on the cake I can have an acre or two of standing corn. I can put that down next to the houses and, you know, let those deer, you know, not bother that so much that I got, you know, I got a nice cornfield standing there. I can have my clover and my chicory and I, I do have all that stuff, but yet I have a massive amount of of fruit trees that, the deer are making pass from chestnut tree to chestnut tree or, or, you know, grow a pair of trees, you know, 10 located right by me that I know are going to drop, you know, that mid October, to mid-November time frame when I plan on being in there hunting, uh, it's it's just money. Yeah, it's money. It's it's gonna put a lot of deer coming to one location on my property.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, having the drop time piece of it nailed down and having that variety keeps them on the landscape a lot longer and keeps them attracted to those you know incoming locations, those focal points a lot more. That's that's really I think important. And I think people don't recognize that these drop times will vary, even the same tree that it'll vary to some degree, I'm sure. But generally speaking, having that, that variety on the landscape and that diversity gives you a lot of options. And I think that's important for people to recognize. So it's thinking about not just the location, it's thinking about drop time. And you brought up something else, disease resistance. I want to talk a little bit about that. And I want to talk about your take on it. And what does that really mean? What, what does it mean to you when you say disease resistance? Uh, I
1: mean, if, if you're heavily, you know, I mean, when you look at pears, there's really not much out there other than fire blight and scab. Two things are going to be debilitating to your tree or to your fruit production. So there are two things that are very important, especially if you're going to put it out and put it in no spray situation and, and you know, grow this tree for wildlife. So that's, that's very important. I mean, if you get into apples, you're looking at cedar apple rust, you're looking at fire blight again and you're looking at scab, you know, scab, not so much, you know, I care if, if it's that debilitating to, to the, the fruits falling, that's no good. If there's a little scab, you know, a touch of scab on, on some apples or feeding deer. So that's not that big a deal to me, even though the majority of everything that I would sell is, is very, is on the upper echelon of, of everything in, in the disease resistance realm of things, you know, back to the apples, you're really looking at, uh, you know, fire blight could be a big issue for you, especially as you move, you know, down, you know, really deep in the south. More of an issue because it, it's a, it's a disease that comes at that time in the spring where you know there's a lot of moisture and and the heat starts coming up there, and you know it's it's really ready of you know readily available to uh, you know cause some havoc to your tree. So it's important not to have something that's susceptible to that that has some resistance already built into the tree. You know, cedar apple rust, same thing, can be debilitating, can defoliate a tree. And if a tree has no leaves on it, well, a tree can't grow with no leaves on it. So you need to have something that that at least has some resistance to that. And and even, you know, that can even affect fruit, too, that you're getting fruit falling prematurely. Well, nobody wants fruit falling prematurely. So you're looking at having something that's got some resistance to that cedar apple rust. Eh, That covers about all three. As far as persimmons, they're really... There is really no disease out there that that's going to harm your persimmon fruit from prematurely falling or anything about it, which makes persimmons very good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to back up. So if, let's talk about maintenance and let's talk about sprays and dealing with you know trees. You seem to be a naturalist since you know since we've met. What is what is your approach to dealing? Are using oils or using anything to kind of manage the trees? Uh, for disease, et cetera. What, what's your take on a lot of this? This uh... Uh,
1: Again, plant disease, you know, plant something that's got some good resistance to it. Yeah. Um, as, as far as if you got time and you want to spray dormant oil, by all means, above 40 degrees, go, go spray some dormant. This this is a perfect time of year. You get that 42 degree day or that 50 degree day, you, you're, you're going to benefit yourself. You're going to make your trees more productive, you know, with spraying, you know, some dormant sprays and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with doing that. If, if, you have the time and you want your orchard to be the best it's going to be, do it. You know, if you see, you know, the gypsy moss start coming, you know, gypsy moss, the full a trees. As I just said, trees without leaves on, don't put on as much growth. It's going to it's gonna slow them down, you know, and they normally show up here for us in the northeast, uh, you know, about, what, third week of May, yep. beginning of June. You start seeing them, you know, you want to go take care of them, it's, it's a good idea. I would not knock anybody and i would encourage you guys to go go and spray but do you have to no is it going to benefit you yes it's going to benefit you
0: yeah yeah that's um that is interesting and people have been dealing with obviously that issue for the you know past few years and i think you know i've, I've known a few orchards having some issues um, and then obviously individuals yeah. are planting trees you're, you're dealing with that so you can pick them off you can burn them birds can kill them there's a lot of options i've seen duct tape yeah. i've seen all sorts of different tactics
1: and, and working with the state and stuff like that, and amongst trees and stuff like that, I can tell you gypsy moths is going to be bad, which they're calling something else now, but they're, they're going to be bad for the next five or ten years. And they're only going to let up a little bit if we get a really, really wet spring. And then that's just going to cause other problems. So Yeah.
0: Foliar spraying. Do you know any foliar spraying with your trees?
1: No. Okay. I mean, everything that I grow to sell and, and ship out and stuff like that, yes, is sprayed very well. Because I have to. Everything that I have planted for deer, I've never, to this day, sprayed a tree. Not saying I would benefit with it. Full your sprays again. Never do nothing in blossom. If, if you're going to do that, there's plenty of them out there, plenty of different good products out there. You know, never do it while trees are in bloom.
0: I've seen that mistake but, uh, before. I've made that mistake before, so thank you, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I think people people don't recognize the timing's critical of, of that. and, and
1: Very timing. The, the two most important times if you're going to do it is before your blossoms open and right after they fall off. And obviously, you know, and when you look at blossoms and stuff like that, I mean, uh, you, you, uh, you can get a pear tree and a persimmon is not, is going to bloom six. It's that's six weeks, six weeks after a pear tree will bloom. So you got plenty of time in there, but even between varieties within species, you know, there's, there's, there's time in there. So you want to be careful with what you're doing. Even if it's three quarter petal fall or half petal fall, I went, I wouldn't get in there and kill beneficial insects to us. They're going to help us, but you almost got to pick if you're going to go one way or the other way, you know, almost in the spray situation, even though uh slightly would, would benefit you just don't hit those blo- Don't hit blossom time on that particular species is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. I think that's uh that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm going to go back real quick and, and just something that I wanted. I was going back through uh, some talking notes that I had and, a lot of times uh, the philosophy is to create as much airflow through a tree and, yes. and to not crowd or allow the tree to crowd itself interior. What would be kind of some rules that you would employ for creating that? I don't want to say a chimney effect, but creating that kind of rising and falling of air uh, to minimize you know, fungal matter or whatever else dominates the trunk of the tree. What would be your philosophy in, in interior?
1: Well, interior kind of goes back to, to pruning those, you know, building that scaffolds up that you're getting that airflow through the tree. You know, for me, you know, on, on a tree that's, that I've planned out for the deer, this tree's for the deer, I normally just don't, I don't, I don't let any scaffold below about four or five feet. Okay. And after that, it may be, you know, and as we talked about earlier with the bears in that scaffold and, you know, look in the airflow, sunlight, you want sunlight, being able to hit those leaves in the middle of that tree, and yet still get that, you know, airflow through the tree that the moisture dries off, and that doesn't cause any type of issues and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I would just really, you know, get scaffolds going in there, you know, at that, around that two-foot mark or so, and as the tree matures, you'll see which, which laterals become dominant. Bear country, keep those and, and really keep those going, and, and uh, not bear country, more the better. Just, just let enough uh, in there so you can get some airflow through there.
0: Yeah, the more branching, the better, and I think that's it's obviously variety contingent and how the tree naturally wants to grow, but yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. All right, let me see. I don't know if I have any other questions for you today other than one last question. In your opinion, if you were to start, let's just say, a fruit orchard, and it was for deer, let's talk varieties that you sell and um, you know, be very specific of varieties that you like. That you would employ in the landscape on your hunting property, what would Ryan oh, pick? Or Ryan would pick. Uh, go ahead. No, top three, four oh. trees. Three,
1: four trees. Oh, you can't only just pick three or four trees. All right, go more. In pear trees, I'm I'm an archery hunter. I would focus mostly on that time when that uh, natural occurrence happens that the fruit ripens naturally outside and becomes very sweet to us and the deer. I would. F- Varieties that I have: Harvest Pear, Sweet Event Pear, Kiefer Pear, Hunter's Deer Pear. Be my top four pears that I would plant just because I'm dropping October tenth until you know November thirtieth. That's money for our archery season here in Pennsylvania, and and the trees are just you know lights out as far as production, as far as putting deer at a specific spot and you know during a time period where I want to hunt um apple crabs i mean i love turning point turning point's an exceptional tree you know for us here in central pennsylvania this tree originated out of new york central pa here we're looking at about the uh, you know second week of october all the way through into december into our rifle season just a continual drop it doesn't it ripens unevenly. exceptional tree you know, turning point is in my five or six years of knowing that tree now, there's never been a year I've seen the fail to fruit and not just that it had some fruit on it, that it fruited heavily. Wow. Fruits out on that one year old wood, but a lot of the pear trees I just mentioned, fruit out on that one year old wood. And that's important when you're looking at a tree that's gonna be productive. Fruiting down on that one year old wood is, is something special. Not every tree fruits out on one year old wood. Very you know, very few do. You know, when you got that, it's something special. I on. I mean, Buckman, you know, it all depends on what you want to do. Buckman crab would be a great one. You know, if you want to pick up some sheds in central PA, you know, that's a good one. Winter crab arena would be a good one, highly disease resistant, just as Buckman is. I mean, pretty much immune to everything, immune or, or high resistance, but yet they're both late. They're not really going to drop a, an apple off or an apple crab or a crab apple till January. If you're a shed hunter, you know, if you put... 20 or 30 of them on a hillside and, you know, you give it five or 10 years full, oh, man, are you, you in the money, the money on your South side. And if you got some hemlocks close by form to bed underneath, you're, you're feeding some deer. But like I said, I'm an archer hunter. It's hard. There's a lot of good one out. I'm an enterprise apple. Very good. one. we all know that is, we've, we've all been planting for, you know, in wildlife side of things, probably for 20, 30 years. And the tree's been around you now about that long, but it's a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking to feed in that that mid October to, you know, mid late November for for me here in Central PA, you know, Ed's crazy crab, uh, sweet November, big dog, uh, October crab. If you're looking for October crab apples, October crabs, the DR on it's great and, and it's clean and the vigor is great and drops a lot of crabs from. Pretty much the entire month of October feeds a few off into beginning of November, but I could go on and on here because there really is nothing on that website or on Blue Hill Wildlife Nursery that 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 I don't believe in or I I don't have growing for myself or I don't have everything. Just has a a specific way to use it. If you're going to look at persimmons, deer luscious is is the best fruit you're ever going to eat, whether it's for human consumption or not. It's a new variety of the world, and I named it deer luscious. But it's it's something that uh, In the persimmon side of things is better than most all that are out there for human consumption that are being sold to commercial market for human consumption. It's better than those, and it's a large size fruit and is fully self-fertile and don't get much better than that. There's a lot of other good ones there. I mean, nothing wrong with full draw, smaller fruit, really productive, a little bit later. But deer luscious would go on from, you know, mid to late September here and still dropping into December you know, to meet a persimmons, a persimmons that we've all planted for a long time. For here, it just hits me in the bow season. It's it's a great food source, even though it's a, you know, it's not my tree. It's not my variety. I didn't come up with it, but it's a good one.
0: And that's an annual producer, the persimmons?
1: Oh, yeah. They don't, going to blossom till, you know, for you up in New York, you'd probably be first week of June for me. And here I'd probably be, you know, the last couple of days of may
0: mm-hmm. you
1: might be a week later than me there's a new one this year called tin cup that no, actually was new last year and tin cup that's from just west of syracuse new york you know
0: I know and you're that, looking at I persimmons know tr- i know that tree so that's interesting you've heard
1: that name yep i mean that's that's a that's a cool find there on um, either way there's an exceptional tree ex- exceptional taste and growing you know 150 miles out of the native range of a persimmons great tree that up there in you know east west top of seneca there you know it's literally fallen from october 1st till you know into mid-november but but a great tree annually productive just as all persimmons are but i mean still a a, you know just a a solid tree that if i was sitting up in central new york and thought i want to plant a persimmons Tin Cup would be your first choice if you're looking. You know, you you're still hit the southern zone season up there and, and still got persimmons coming off in, you know, that first week of rifle season up in southern New York. So great tree.
0: Well, I think you listed out more trees than I had asked, and uh, I appreciate yeah. your recommendations. I think that's uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty good for the listeners. And, and
1: I I apologize there I rambled on, but it's hard once no, you get me started not not to stop. So
0: no, no, you've got a lot of passion in this, and and you can hear it in your voice, and, and I appreciate that. And I, I like all these varieties and options, and kind of all the topics we thought about. It's you know there's a lot to this. There's a lot to selecting trees. There's a lot to putting on the landscapes. It's site selection, soil right? How to manage that tree, how to protect that tree. There's a lot that goes into it. You know, we've hit on a lot of the key topics here. As you start to dig into this, you know, philosophy or your strategy, you're going to kind of come up with your own artistic piece of this and approach to it. But I think Ryan's approach is a little bit different. And and why I like him is the fact that he's thinking long-term. He's got a long-term plan. He's thinking about trees that are going to stay in the landscape and they're going to propagate. They're going to be beneficial, you know, after his you know, demise, obviously, and it's going to provide a wildlife benefit. And I think that's important to think through that. And and that's why I kind of appreciate it because we're managing the timber, we're managing our fields, we're managing our fruit trees. I think that's really important. All right, Ryan, anything else from you, anything you want to talk about your business or you personally or anything you got going on? I appreciate you taking time out of your day today to be on here because I know you're busy. Yep.
1: Nope. You're welcome.
0: So if you want to get a hold of him, uh, you can. Uh, I would say he's a busy person. Go to his website, you can see the products that he has on there. We're kind of past due. He's I'm, I'm assuming you're already pre-sold out this year. But you know, stay in, in tune with his website because you know, the varieties we talked about today will be on there. And there's obviously other good distributors across the landscape. You know, consider local, but consider you know some of the things we talked about today, because I think that will help you make those decisions if you're employing fruit trees on your landscape. And, you know, we're not just thinking about you know soft mass, we also have to think about hard mass. He brought a chest and trees earlier, they're important on the landscape. So think about where you're going to employ those and why and have a strategy. All right, Ryan, thanks for the time today, man. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you, catching up. And uh, hopefully the rest of your uh, your uh, winter season goes well. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
1: No doubt. Take care. All right, man. Bye. bye Mike.
0: Maximize Your
1: Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out
0: Whitetail Landscapes dot com.